0: Welcome back to Investigating Legal Systems featuring China. This episode is going to talk about civil justice and we're going to be comparing China and the United States together in a comparative law project. My name is Lucas Gravenstein and I am one of the head anchors. We also have joining us today
1: Taylor Curtis and Mahan.
0: And we'd like to welcome you back to Investigating Legal Systems, the China version. Thank you.
1: First, we'll start with a general overview of civil litigation in China versus the United States. The US, as we read about, is generally seen as a highly litigious society where people can bring frivolous suits for almost anything. In China and other East Asian countries, it's definitely not the same thing. Civil litigation in China is not seen as a good thing or a productive thing for society. This is a legacy that dates back to Confucianism and the need to emphasize duty and the collective over the individual. Because of this, Chinese civil litigation highly stresses the importance of mediation before actually litigating the claim. Civil litigation was so rarely used in the past in China that they didn't even have a formal civil procedural law until the 80s because of their new economic open door policy, which made it necessary to create a formal kind of way to settle disputes that resulted from trade issues. Since the very preliminary civil procedure law was enacted in the 80s, many reforms have been made starting in the 90s and leading up until the present day. As I mentioned before, there was really no need for a detailed civil procedure law in China because of how much mediation is stretched in the culture. Mediation occurs several times throughout the civil litigation process, often facilitated by the courts themselves. Mediation used to be a mandatory step before filing a motion with the court, but now, because of reforms to their civil procedure code and the modern era, mediation has to be voluntary, but it is still highly encouraged. Because of how new the civil procedure law is in China, several of the aspects of it are very broad and hard to be interpreted. For example, to file a complaint, a plaintiff must have a direct interest in the case, but the term direct interest is never defined in the law and specified anywhere else. Recall from our reading that in the US to file a civil claim, you must have been deprived of something you are legally entitled to. So that differs slightly from the Chinese law. In addition to having a direct interest in the case, you must name a specific defendant and have a specific claim with a factual basis, and it must fall within the range of civil actions accepted by courts, which is a lot more narrow than I think it is in the US courts, where several types of cases will be accepted. The Chinese court has seven days after receiving your complaint to decide whether to accept it, and they can very well deny it. But once they do, the complaint is served to the defendant, just like in the US, and the defendant's answer is served to the plaintiff also like the US. After these complaints and answers are served to both parties begins the pre-trial phase, or their equivalent. In this phase, there are really no disclosure rules or proceedings. In the US, you may recall that both parties are obligated to disclose all related materials that the other party would need. In China, there are no rules relating to disclosure whatsoever, so it is not clear that any party has a duty to inform the other of anything they're planning to use. Also vague in the Chinese law is the burden of proof, which is not clearly on the plaintiff. The Chinese procedural law is very vague when it comes to who has the burden of proof for what evidence, although recently it's being amended to put it more on the plaintiff directly. There is also no exclusionary rule in China to prevent evidence that was seized illegally from being used in the court, like there is in the US. In the US, both sides and their attorneys get all related evidence themselves and exchange it. In China, it is different because the court frequently engages in independent investigation during this pretrial phase. In the procedural law in China, it says that the court can only investigate when they deem it necessary. Again, necessary is not defined. It's very vague, and one could argue that judges in China and the courts could use that vague terminology as uh, an excuse to interfere when they really shouldn't. The U.S. is an adversarial system where the judge has no kind of duty to perform any independent investigation or finding of evidence on their own. However, as I mentioned, it is very different in China as the judge is directly involved in finding evidence, questioning witnesses, etc. Because of the unclear rules on disclosure, evidence, burden of proof, etc., You could argue that the judgment that the judges come to in China is often very related to their personal views and bias, especially if they were independently engaged in the investigation. As we talked about in our last couple episodes, judges in China are generally not legally trained as well as judges in other areas of the world. And this could definitely be um, a block to good justice. In class, we talked about different forms of alternative dispute resolution, like mediation and arbitration. As I mentioned, in China, mediation is highly stressed and the courts will generally try to mediate a case several times before the judge has to make an actual judgment. The most common forms of mediation in China are people's mediation and judicial mediation. People's mediation, as the name suggests, involves outside mediators that are members of the community who try to talk with both parties and come to a conclusion. Judicial mediation is when the court itself is involved in the mediation. 40% of cases in China are settled by either one of these two types of mediation. China also has a system of arbitrating disputes like the US, but it is slightly different. There are arbitration commissions set up all around China. The decisions that are made in these arbitration commissions are binding and the court will reject a case if there's already a valid arbitration agreement. There are no appeals to these arbitration decisions, which is unlike in the US where normally you can find a way to appeal it or it's not binding depending on the type of arbitration you're participating in. If a civil suit does eventually reach the stage where a judgment is given by the court, you get one appeal in China and the second verdict is final. Unlike the U.S., appellate courts review both facts and law, where the U.S. appellate courts generally just review errors that a judge may have made in interpreting the law. Once a decision is made at the appellate court in China, though, that is final and it cannot be appealed again, unlike the U.S., where you have the potential to go to a couple different appellate courts. This whole process, once the court decides to take a case, generally is done in about six months. At least that's the deadline given by the civil procedural law in China. The deadline can only be extended upon voluntary agreement by all parties. There is also an abbreviated form of this process though called summary procedure, which is much more informal than the general procedure. Generally, it involves disputes that are simple, where facts are clear, there is not a lot at stake, and the two parties can go to the court and sometimes on the spot get one judge to adjudicate and make a decision. Generally, it does take a little longer than that though, and summary procedures have a timeline of three months where they have to be adjudicated. As I mentioned before, this formal civil procedural law is very new to China, and so they are still figuring out a lot of ways to improve it, and courts are giving judgments on how to interpret different vague terms like direct interest or necessary when it comes to a court engaging in independent investigation. I think that the process of civil procedure in China is generally a lot, again, just vague and probably accounts for a lot of mistakes, whereas the U.S., we have a very developed civil procedure because of the amount of civil litigation that occurs. However, China is entering a new era of increasing civil litigation with more connection, to the world, more connection to the economy, more connection to each other, etc. And they're slowly starting to introduce a more adversarial system like the U.S. has, which I think is a good thing because the adversarial system makes it so that each side will bring everything that they can and the judge just has to hear that and make an independent decision. I think that the practice of a judge engaging in his own independent investigation could lead to corruption, especially because the Communist Party in China tends to interfere with a lot of political and judicial activities already. Also taking into account the fact that judges are not highly trained and generally just go through a short training and don't have much legal experience, this could lead to a lot of issues. After talking a
2: little bit about civil actions with Emma, we are now going to go into some specific categories of civil law. for the US and China. It seems like as Emma said that China needs to go more in depth on their laws and expand them and um it turns out that in specific areas such as family law that China has not equal but very similar laws and expectations um as the US does. When talking about family law in the US, we start in the state court. Family law in the US includes divorce or annulment, child custody, and spousal support or alimony. There are many other categories of family law, but today we're gonna to talk about these three in specific. So just to give an overview of the US and what they see as family law, we're gonna get talk about three main points. The first being, family law encompasses a broad range of legal topics involving marriage and children. Family law includes divorce or annulment, child custody, visitation rights, child support payments, and spousal support or alimony. Lastly, for children, family law specifically deals with adoption, deals with guardianship, state child protection, and domestic violences. Now, one may ask if you never heard the term Annualment before, what is the difference between divorce and annulment? So, both divorce and annulment are court procedures that will dissolve a marriage. The difference between the two is that divorce simply ends the marriage and annulment treats the marriage as if something never happened. Let's pause here from the US and talk a little bit about China and what is legally expected in a marriage in China, just so we have a complete overview before we talk about are three main categories. So China lays out its laws and articles, and that is what's going to state exactly what is expected legally of a marriage. So in Article 1, this just lays the basic principles for marriage and family relations. Under Article 2, it says that a marriage system is based on freedom, monogamy, and equal equality between man and woman shall be intimate, implemented. The lawful rights and interests of the women, children, and old people shall be protected and birth control shall be practiced. In Article 3, it states that marriage arranged by any third party and any interference in the freedom of marriage shall be prohibited. Any exaction of money or property by means of marriage shall be prohibited. Bigamy shall be prohibited, which means that no one has a spouse may prohibit with any other person. Familial violence shall be prohibited, and maltreatment or desertion of any family member shall be prohibited. So as you probably noticed, China's idea of marriage is pretty similar to the U.S., but like I said, I just wanted to make sure we had an idea of what China considered a marriage before we get into topics like divorce and child support and comparing those to the U.S., So let's jump back into the U.S. when we were talking about annulment and divorce. So in order to have an annulment, you might ask, what are the qualifications for that? And now that we know the difference between annulment and divorce, we can talk about annulment in specific. So the qualifications are fraud or misinterpretation of the marriage, close relations between the spouse that violates the state's incest laws, one spouse is under age of consent, one or both of the spouses were impaired or had an unsound mind at the time they entered the marriage. could be caused by coercion or force, or one spouse was already in a legal marriage with someone else at the time of the existing marriage. Those are the main qualifications for one married couple if they want to go through an annulment, which means that the marriage technically never happened.
1: So, once a couple decides that they do want to get a dis- divorce, you mentioned spousal support and alimony having a role in that procedure. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so spousal support, which is also known as alimony, represents regular payments made from one spouse to the other during a separation or after the initial divorce. The purpose of these is to recognize that the recipient spouse com- contribution to the marriage and assist that the spouse is to achieve financial independence after the marriage ends. And the amount of spousal support assigned will depend on the specific state, but generally it is greater and longer when the duration of the marriage is greater and longer. Um, and in order to qualify for this and to have you know, the requirements that need to be put up front when you're requesting the alimony, um, is significant because it's only granted to individuals who are actually and legally married uh, the factors of the court they look at to determine the alimony vary from state to state like I said earlier but often there's no set formula for determining alimony um, and the court can award it to either spouse so some of the common factors that most court most courts will include looking at would be the length of the marriage the fault, financial circumstances, and this can be based on property owned, um, and if that's applicable, then the um, income producing capacity of the property. Um, Another uh, factor would be the income of earning capacity of the spouses, um, or the physical conditions like health, disabilities, and age can also be considered. So in general, the courts will likely look at the financial needs, and circumstances of the spouse who is requesting the support and whether paying the spouse can afford the, spou- the support payments. Now that we know a little bit about how divor- divorce works and what the process is in the U.S., let's take a step over to China and their Article 31, which states that divorce shall be allowed if both husband and wife are willing to divorce. Both parties shall apply to the marriage registration authority for divorce, and the marriage registration authority issues a certificate of divorce after confirming that both parties are indeed willing to divorce and have made proper arrangements for their children, have made and have properly disposed of their property. So, those are pretty similar to the U.S., and we didn't go too much into detail about the divorce in the U.S., but we went into the process. So the process for China looks pretty similar to the U.S. where either the husband or the wife applies to get the divorce and um, the departments concerned may make mediations or he or she may file a suit at the court of the people for divorce. So the people's court shall make mediations in the process of hearing a divorce suit and the divorce shall be granted if mediation fails because mutual affection no longer exists. Divorce shall be granted if any of the following cir- circumstances occur and mediation fails. Either party is a bigamist or a person who has a spouse but prohibits with another person, like we've seen in the U.S. B, there is family violence or maltreatment or desertion of any family member. Either party is indulged in gambling, drug abuse, or has other vicious habits and refuses to mend his or her ways despite of repeated abuse. Both parties have lived separately due to lack of mutual affection for up to two years. So looking at these circumstances, we see a lot in the U.S. and China that coexist. So about the, the maltreatment of family members, um, having incest, um, someone who is deserting a family member, those all really exist both in China and the U.S. and um, play a role in, in the divorce processes. Um, something that was interesting about China is that the husband may not apply for divorce when his wife is pregnant or within one year after giving birth to a child or within six months of terminating gestation. On the other hand, the restriction shall not apply to the case where the wife applies for divorce or the People's Court deems it necessary to accept the application of the husband for divorce. I found this interesting because I had never heard of a rule or said article from China like this and I wanted to apply a criticism of this this rule or this law that is in China of kind of stating that if a husband wants to get a divorce with a wife that he should be able to do so regardless of if the the woman is pregnant or not or within six months of um, terminating gestation. I don't think that it's necessarily fair for the husband to not be able to get out of the relationship for any said reason. But he should have a choice, so he should be able to terminate the relationship if he wants to it shouldn't it shouldn't have to rely on if the woman is pregnant or not and follow that rule. I do think that some sort of support should be there for the woman. I don't think that he should just be allowed to up and run um so kind of like when we talk about child support, I think that some type of support for the mother for her pregnancy should be applied in this case.
1: So Taylor, I mentioned how in China, mediation is very important in their civil procedure process. And we also see this process of mediation in the US. Can you talk a little bit about what mediation looks like in the US? Yeah, so family mediation
2: is a method used to resolve family issues. Um, in family mediation, a neutral third party mediator helps the two parties sort out their differences, reach agreements on various points of their relationship, and work out just kind of what is going on. Um, family mediation can save the party's time and costs associated with the trial, but the decisions reached may not always legally be binding as the process is somewhat informal. Um, Usually, a judge will encourage parents or couples to seek mediation instead of going straight into litigation. This is an essential choice and process because it's a lower cost, it saves time, and it's definitely a lot less stress on the children who are involved. Um, So, all around, it's always a good idea to consider family mediation as a first step. And we see this a lot, too, in the legal... Process um, when it's not dealing with family, just to save the time and see if the issues can be figured out in mediation and not take the whole case to trial and spend all the money and spend all the time trying to fix something that when if you tried mediation first, it it could have worked. So if you do go into mediation, um, you probably wonder what is this process really involve, So it starts with the parties and they have to agree to submit the mediation sessions. So it's going to be a voluntary mediation. Um, This is the most important and sometimes most difficult part of the process is, you know, deciding that you guys are both willing to work together. And if both parties are not willing to work with a mediator, the process can't be forced upon them. So if one is willing and one is not, it can't be forced upon them. So mediation is not going to be a choice for that for that necessary party um so how is this mediator chosen sometimes the judge may appoint the neutral third party but oftentimes the parties are free to choose their own mediator preferably it is you know recommended that they should be a family lawyer or a professional who's knowledgeable of family law issues um some may choose a counselor the mediator must not be materially interested in the outcome of the mediation. So no bias, no relationship, nothing known about the two people involved so that they are able to be an acceptable, third-party, neutral person. Um, sometimes these mediations can last anywhere from one day to several, re- several weeks. Um, it just depends on the nature of the family law um the conflict involved the actual mediation session um during these meetings the parties will express their concerns and attempt to reach a solution so it really can take quite a bit of time um deciding these you know what's going to work best as the resolution once they do get to that point and decide on something we find out what happens after the mediation After the sessions are complete, the parties should have come to some sort of agreement, some sort of resolution that they initially came in for. And this final agreement may not be legally binding, as I said earlier, but the parties can formalize the agreement in a written document, such as a contract. To cover the family law segment of this podcast, we're going to end with something you've probably been wondering if I'm going to cover on or not, and that would be the children in the cases The children of the family. So we talk about child support, child custody, how it works in the U.S., how it works in China, and what is necessarily best for the children. So how are child custody and visitation rules established? Well, the child custody issues often arise when a couple goes through a divorce. We know what that takes. We know what that encounters. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of agreement. This could be very dwelling on a child, especially if they're in their younger years. So if the, ch- if the couple can come to an agreement on child custody visitation on their own, the court will usually honor this agreement. Um, however, if the couple can't reach an agreement, the court will issue a child custody plan based upon the best interest of the child and the legal standard of that. The court, while doing this, will use several factors to determine what child placement situation is best for the child. Um, and these you know could go anywhere from the parent's ability to provide um, the health of the parent's preference of the child, anything along those lines. Um, So it might be just easier to, you know, agree on something. So again, it's easier for the child and it's a mutual agreement between both parents. Um, Now we get into child support. And child support is a series of um, court-ordered payments by a non-custodial parent to the individual with primary custody of the child. Child support is an intended to pro- provide the child's basic necessities and usually covers food, shelter, and clothing, health and medical care, and educational ex- expenses. So this is just making sure that, you know, not one parent is doing all the work, spending all the money. Um, so we want to make sure we have laws that are for that so we can, you know, express equality and that one parent's not struggling over the other. Um, so that's the U.S. And if we if we dive deep into China... You'll see you know the question is again when the parents get divorced how does the child support work So in China it states the relationship between parents and children does not terminate due to divorce of parents so they have the right to have a relationship with the child with the child after the divorce of the parents the child remain the children remain the children of both parties no matter they are. Are supported directly by either the father or the mother both father and mother will after divorce have the right and obligation of upbringing their children if after the, the divorce the children are to be brought up by either party the other party shall undertake a part or all of the necessary living and ex- education expenses the amount of payment term shall be agreed upon by both parties if no agreement is achieved, the amount of terms shall be decided by the people's court. So this is a lot like the U.S. Um, the similarities are that if you don't come to an agreement as a couple, the higher courts are going to decide that for you. Um, so we see that after divorce, the parent does not directly bring up the children. Um has the right to visit the child and the other party has the obligation to give assistance and the way and the time for exercising the right of visitation um, for the children shall be agreed upon by the parties concern. Um, lastly, if the visit of either the father <clears throat> or the mother is harmful to the soundness of the body and mind of the children, the right shall be terminated by the people's court. When the reasons for terminating the said right disappear, the right shall resume. So, again, it's it's pretty straightforward. Come to an agreement, um, abide by the agreement, provide what's needed, and it makes it a lot easier on on the children um, when you can come to an agreement and not have to go back and forth through the people's court and what do we do here and what do we do there. Um, So those are the basic principles for family law and China and the U.S. and how they really do coexist with each other, um, but have their individual differences.
0: To further our research and the comparative law project for China, um, we also investigated torts and the tort law surrounding China. And unfortunately for China, tort law has not been around very long. It is a relatively new piece of law legislation in Chinese government. Um, China has a new tort law starting in 2009 that took effect in 2010. And there's a couple types of special statutes, and those laws are related to specific types of torts. China developed its civil laws for tort um, case by case. So they made an overlying law reflecting the fact that individuals have a right to property And damage to those properties basically inherits compensation for it. So, what they did was they developed this overarching law and then developed precedent case by case until eventually law started coming together and a more clear and crystal pure image of tort law came about in China. Now, tort liability has three elements in China infringement, damage, and that there's a casualty between infringement and damage. So essentially something happened in between there. So you infringed on someone's right. There was something that occurred that led to damage in between the damage and the infringement part. Now, after you have the three elements, assuming someone is found liable for the tort law, Um, The tort liabilities, there's a method of assuming the tort um, or assuming the liability for it, and there's actually quite a few. Um, Return of property, cessation of infringement, removal of obstruction, elimination of danger, restoration to original statute, compensation, a.k.a. money or other things that would compensate for the loss of something, An apology this can be done in person in court this can also be done um with paper and pen is kind of what it said with the research that we did so it can be a more formal apology Um, elimination of consequences and restoration of reputation so if your reputation is damaged if they can somehow fix that that would be a method of assuming the liability um But for, say, you are an employee and you do something that would necessitate a tort law case, um, your employer would be the one to take the liability, not yourself, as you are working for them, and therefore it is their fault. Now, China's very big on, basically, they're not being a reaction to the action, so if any of these things happen during the case, um, tort liability can and will be immediately waived. So harm caused intentionally by the victim of the original crime. So if I myself get my car stolen and then go attack the person who did it, I, my liability would be waived. Um, harm caused by a third party... So if I send someone to doe, attack someone for their wrongdoing, that would also waive the liability. Um, forced manure and caused by self-defense or an emergency hedge would also necessitate tort liability would be waived as well. Um, in tort law, there is no special section for property infringement. So the law does aim at protecting rights and some intellectual property and personal rights. But for the most part, again, China's tort law section of its laws are still developing, and its civil civil side and civil procedures are still developing in China as well. So because of this, unlike the U.S., they focus on protecting rights of people and developing the law because that's what's going to further their country. Now, in the United States... It's a little bit different, and it's focused on four elements. It's focused on duty, the breach of duty, what caused that breach of duty, and the injury or damages suffered because of that. Now, in the U.S., many courts award, well, actually most courts award a compensatory fee um, for liability. So that's going to be, so if you're liable, you're going to pay a fee to whoever you damaged or hurt. And in the U.S., it is very, the tort law section is very sought out. It has been used. It has, it's a lot more well-defined in law than China's system. And it's not much, it's focused on protecting people's individual rights and keeping their rights and giving them their rights versus creating the law such as China is doing and working around the law. So in China a lot of things when you're going into tort law and when you're arguing these cases, a lot of them are unknown and you might not know there might not be a precedent and there might not be a previous thing to go off of. And you might not know what the judge is gonna go with because they're not necessarily entitled to follow precedent either. Now in the US though, there's been so many cases before you there's precedent, there's torts have been around for a long time, which means your rights, you can kind of look at the law and get a clear image of what possibly could happen. So I think the main difference between China and the U.S. for tort laws is how long and how developed their law systems are, which I think is going to be the main piece for tort laws here.
1: So overall, it was interesting doing research for this episode on civil justice, because as I mentioned in my section, and, and Lucas briefly mentioned in his, the laws for civil justice are fairly new in China and very vague, and so it was difficult trying to find things.
0: Yeah, they are still developing, and these laws are still coming into place as China hasn't always been focused on the law. Um, thankfully, China has, as we've talked in the previous episode, has more of a clearer criminal side to the law. And I think China, as a developing nation and as a nation who has more recently than other nations developed, they're now coming to terms with the fact that they're developed and they have to come up with a civil procedure side, which in an underdeveloped country, that might not be important because your personal property and your intellectual rights might not be as important versus in the United States, a developed country where we really do value our personal rights, our intellectual property. And the things, you know, that we hold closest to us. So I think in terms of China, China is just really figuring out how they are moving forward. And with this new tort law they have starting in 2010 and the new civil procedures starting as well in recent years, they're working towards getting a more thought out and I think figured out civil system that will benefit the people of China.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a good thing that that's happening. Thank you for listening to episode three of our podcast. We hope you enjoyed and have a wonderful day.